Hey there, welcome to ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Jason Barnes, and today we will be talking about jugular paragangliomas. We are joined by Dr. Matt Carlson. Dr. Carlson, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. I'll note that when we talk about jugular paragangliomas, sometimes they're also called glomus jugulare. We might call them that during the interview today. But we'll start with presentation. Dr. Carlson, when folks present with this type of tumor, what do they often present with? So most commonly, patients who are presenting with jugular paraganglioma present with pulsatile tinnitus and conductive hearing loss. Less commonly, they may also have symptoms of lower cranial neuropathy, so dysphonia or dysphagia, and sometimes hypernasal speech from uh, palatal incompetence. Those are the most common presentations. It's interesting that because of the position and where these tumors arise uh, in the skull base, they're often there's often a delay in diagnosis, so patients may present with slowly progressive symptoms for many years before a diagnosis is actually established. And when we talk about the epidemiology of this tumor, what type of folks are, are walking into your clinic with this tumor? So most patients who present with jugular paraganglioma are usually in their 50s, uh, 40s, 50s, or 60s. Uh, that could be in contrast to patients with familial paraganglioma who might present at a younger age. And jugular paraganglioma distinctly presents more commonly in women, and uh, the quoted rate is about a 6 to 1 ratio of women to men at presentation. And when you first meet these folks, I'm sure they have a lot of questions, but what do you counsel them on in terms of the likelihood of this becoming malignant? So there are some unique features or some, some features of jugular paraganglioma that we always think about in the back of our mind. One of those is the risk for malignancy. So the risk for malignancy for a head and neck paraganglioma is lower than having uh, malignancy associated with tumor, uh, paraganglioma outside the head and neck region, and the overall risk is about 1 or 3%. And what's interesting about the histopathology of malignancy is in contrast to other tumors, other types of cancers, um, the diagnosis of malignancy is not based on histopathological features, meaning you can't biopsy the tumor itself and determine if it's malignant or not, but rather you have to find... Um, tumor within the lymph nodes to demonstrate metastasis. And I understand there is a genetic component to this, which we'll talk about as well uh, here in a few minutes. But when you see these folks in clinic and you perform a physical exam, what are some things you might look for that might tip you off that this is a jugular paraganglioma? After presentation, they'll, of, they'll often come in with a CT scan, plus or minus MRI, and so frequently the diagnosis is more or less obtained based on involvement of the jugular foramen. But uh, on examination, almost always you'll see a middle ear component, and that middle ear component might be just on the inferior aspect of the tympanic membrane, uh, or more, it might extend to fill the whole middle ear space on otoscopy. And you'll see a characteristic retrotympanic mass, and it, it has a very red or violaceous color, which is in contrast to many other tumors that can involve the middle ear space. So when you talk about the differential diagnosis on otoscopy for a jugular paraganglioma, you have to include other tumors of the middle ear, such as facial nerve schwannoma, an endolymphatic sac tumor, an encephalocele that's herniating uh, low from the tegment tympani, uh, middle ear adenomas, and less commonly, uh, they could be mistaken for a inflammatory lesion, such as chronicotitis media with, uh, polyp, with uh, inflammatory polyps. I've seen that before where they've been referred for uh, jugular paraganglioma, but in fact it was uh, really significant granulation tissue. Uh, much less commonly, they may be mistaken for uh, abnormal location of a blood vessel going through the ear, so most commonly it would be a high jugular bulb, which has a more, uh, a more purple hue, and it's usually posterior inferior, 
And much less commonly, you can have an aberrant uh, petrous carotid artery. And so instead of going uh, inferior and anterior to the cochlea at that first genu, it can take a more lateral course and can actually abut the tympanic membrane and present in a similar way a pulsatile uh, mass in the middle ear space. And in terms of physical exam, there are two signs that are kind of talked about in this topic, brown sign and equino sign. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so brown sign is the finding that on pneumatic otoscopy, the pressure uh, that's uh, created by uh, pneumatic otoscopy creates a blanching of the tumor, so you'll lose some of that rosy color. It'll turn more white. And the tumor has to fill most of the middle ear space or all of the middle ear space for this to really uh, be effective. And I would say that, at least in my experience, um, it's uh, certainly less than half the time you can get a very strong blanching of the tumor with on pneumatic otoscopy if you perform it on your exam. Uh, your second uh, examination finding that you talked about, cunosine, uh, related to com uh, carotid compression and cessation of pulsation, or at least subjective pulsation in the patients here. I have to say that I've never performed this, uh, but it is, a historical, it's, it is of historical relevance. The last uh, feature that people talk about on examination that I, didn't, that I didn't mention earlier is the rising sun sign, and that's the idea that as the tumor comes from the inferior aspect of the jugular foramen into the middle ear space, it can recruit uh, blood vessels of the ear canal, and it, be it can become much more hypervascular, and it creates this characteristic hue, a, a redness with uh, prominent vascularity, pr primarily inferiorly along the annulus and extending into the ear canal. And you kind of mentioned this already, but we should be performing a scope exam when we see these patients? Yeah, if you're suspecting a jugular paraganglioma, uh, you want to perform nasopharyngoscopy and a comprehensive lower cranial nerve examination in addition to the facial nerve, uh, facial nerve examination. Uh, just very briefly, facial nerve involvement uh, without uh, prior to any treatment with the jugular paraganglioma is uh, quite uncommon. It certainly occurs in less than 5% uh, percent of cases overall. When we talk about lower cranial nerve involvement with jugular paraganglioma, there's some things that are distinct from what we will more commonly see in our um, otolaryngology practice. And specifically for involvement of the jugular of jugular frame and tumors, patients will commonly present with more than one lower cranial nerve. And um, the uh, presentation is that of a higher or more proximal involvement of the nerve. So uh, typically in clinic, in ENT clinic, we'll often see patients with recurrent laryngeal nerve paralysis, either from a thoracic procedure or from a head and neck procedure, for example. But patients with jugular par paraganglioma will have a high vagal injury. And why is this important? They'll often present with palatal incompetence, with nasopharyngeal reflux, uh, rhinolalia, which is, uh, related to, which is associated with hypernasal speech. And they'll, off, and they'll also have uh, ipsilateral vocal cord paralysis with loss of sensation. So when you perform nasopharyngoscopy, you can, you can touch their supraglottis with your scope if they have a paralysis, and they'll often be insensate in that area. Patients can also present with hypoglossal involvement, and hypoglossal involvement tends to be a little bit more um, under-recognized, I think, in these patients, uh, particularly a young or um, middle-aged person may compensate very well for a hypoglossal uh, progressive weakness and may not even, uh, might not even be known to the patient. Certainly an older patient may have dysarthria, et cetera, but a younger person, you'll often see atrophy, hemiatrophy of the tongue, even without the patient reporting any uh, supporting symptoms. Shoulder involvement or accessory nerve involvement is also not super common. It may present with um, accessory, accessory nerve syndrome where they might have uh, drop of the shoulder. They may have pain associated with it and um, a wing scapula. When we talk about lower cranial nerve involvement, at least uh, 
on the boards, uh, there's kind of, there's a couple different jugular frame and syndromes. The first is Vernet. And Vernet uh, syndrome is associated with lower cranial nerve involvement of 9, 10, and 11. And Villaret is associated with 9, 10, 11, 12, all, and also a Horner syndrome, plus or minus the facial nerve. And uh, these aren't uh, commonly used clinically, but the way to remember those, at least how I remember them for boards, for example, is Vernet is shorter and it involves less cranial nerves, and Villaret is longer and it involves, it, it's the royal flush, 9 through 12, plus Horner's and plus or minus the facial nerve. And when we talk about pathophysiology, what is a jugular paraganglioma and how is it related to other tumors that we might see in the body? So I think it, it's uh, valuable to go back to original nomenclature. So historically, these were called chemodectomas because they uh, are derived from chemoreceptor cells. And then they uh, more commonly were uh, described as glomus tumors. And now the correct term that we use is paraganglioma. So you can have jugular paraganglioma, tympanic paraganglioma, uh, vagal paraganglioma, and then carotid body tumors. Those are your different, your, the most common head and neck uh, paraganglioma. And they are derived from chief cells within the paraganglia cells uh, associated with the carotid body and the jugular foramen. They're neuroendocrine uh, in origin, and histologically, they're very similar. So jugular paraganglioma histologically look very similar to carotid body tumors and also pheochromocytomas. They're non-chromaffin uh, staining uh, cells uh, that tend to cluster in nests or rests that are uh, commonly referred to as zelbalin, which is a common board question for this. And what are some of the complications involved in this tumor? So originally we alluded to the fact that about 20 to 30 percent of patients will at presentation have lower cranial neuropathy. The majority will have pulsatile tinnitus and conductive hearing loss. If these tumors go untreated, over the first three to five years, an additional 30 percent or so of patients will develop new or worsening lower cranial neuropathy. Over time, the tumor will often erupt into the ear canal and cause intermittent bloody otorrhea, which can be pretty significant in some cases. And only with advanced disease do you tend to see other cranial neuropathies with more intracranial extension or uh, surrounding uh, the facial nerve. So you can have facial nerve paralysis, brainstem compression, uh, and other uh, related symptoms. That's uh, primarily the natural history of untreated disease as it grows. You can also have secretion or a functional tumor, and this is less common in head and neck paraganglioma compared to paraganglioma of the abdomen or chest. In about 2 to 5% of head and neck paraganglioma will secrete catecholamines. The common symptoms of a secreting tumor are diaphoresis, palpitation, sweating. Sometimes patients will uh, present with an arrhythmia, hyper, uncontrolled hypertension, headaches, etc. Less commonly, patients may uh, develop a malignant paraganglioma. With a malignant paraganglioma, as discussed earlier, the diagnosis is based on uh, metastasis to a surrounding lymph node rather than uh, direct histopathology taken from the, the parent tumor itself. And when you see these patients in clinic, the workup is pretty extensive. Can you start by talking about the imaging that you should obtain and what the imaging looks like in these patients? The first imaging test that's usually obtained is a high-resolution, thin-slice temporal bone CT scan. And what you're looking for uh, to characterize a jugular frame and tumor is jugular frame and involvement. And so typically, uh, a jugular tympanicum versus a jugulare, you'll have erosion of the carotico-jugular spine, which is the bone that intervenes between the carotid artery as it comes up into the temporal bone and the jugular bulb. 
these tumors uh, tend to uh, exhibit a moth-eaten appearance of the bone, and they spread. They have very poor defined margins, and they can spread uh, surrounding the jugular foramen. They can extend into the petrous apex, and they can have intracranial extension. Uh, the second test that's usually obtained to further confirm the diagnosis and separate it from other jugular foramen tumors, such as meningioma or schwannoma, is the MRI scan. The MRI scan for jugular paraganglioma will distinctly demonstrate a heterogeneous salt and pepper appearance that's more prominent on T2 but can be seen on T1. It will avidly enhance on T1, and again, it often has ill-defined borders or boundaries. Now, when we're distinguishing these on MRI and CT scan from meningioma and also schwannomas, I think there's some characteristic features to, to talk about. So beyond the flow voids, when we look at a meningioma, Meningiomas can involve, primarily involve the uh, jugular foramen, or they can also secondarily invade the jugular foramen. Meningiomas will not uh, as frequently dilate the jugular foramen. They may have um, bone formation within the tumor uh, exhibited on CT scan. They may also have hyperostosis of the surrounding base. They'll commonly exhibit dural tails, as with meningioma elsewhere. When we look at schwannomas, a schwannoma compared to a jugular uh, foramen paraganglioma will, will more commonly involve or uh, exhibit kind of a dumbbell appearance. So it'll be wide within the posterior fossa, becomes constricted at the jugular foramen, and once again become larger uh, in the neck. Uh, that pretty well distinguishes it from a jugular uh, paraganglioma. If the diagnosis still remains uncertain, which I'll tell you that probably 95% of the time the diagnosis can be made just on CT and MRI alone, but if the diagnosis still remains in question, conventional angiography may be beneficial. And of course, you'll, you'll uh, see a very prominent vascular blush uh, that's more, most prominent with jugular paragangliomas compared to meningioma and also schwannomas. And another imaging technique that you might need to consider is when you're looking for multiple tumors in these patients. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, that's a great point and something that I think is becoming more and more recognized. Uh, 10% of patients with sporadic paraganglioma, head and neck paraganglioma, meaning they don't have a familial uh, contributing component, will still have multicentric or multiple head and neck paraganglioma. And that number increases significantly to 10 to 50% of patients with familial syndromes will have multiple head and neck paraganglioma. You also have to think about paraganglioma developing outside the head and neck region. This is particularly important in a, for a patient who presents with symptoms of catecholamine secretion. If, you're, if the patient has symptoms of it, and more importantly, if the patient uh, demonstrates positive testing for catecholamine secretion, you should also be looking for a pheochromocytoma or another secreting tumor in the abdomen or chest, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But when we're talking about uh, head and neck, primary head and neck involvement, particularly for a jugular paraganglioma, I'll commonly still obtain a head and neck MRI to look for multicentric disease because that can significantly influence how you're treating these patients. If you know that a patient has bilateral involvement, you, have to, you might treat the tumors differently because bilateral lower cranial nerve paralysis is much, imparts much more morbidity to the patient than, say, a unilateral involvement of a single tumor. So when a patient has uh, symptoms of catecholamine secretion or if they have a familial component or a genetic component, it's beneficial to look for disease outside the head and neck as well. And particularly for a patient who has elevated catecholamines, it's commonly uh, recommended to obtain an abdomen and chest CT scan to look for pheochromocytoma. If you're looking for systemic evaluation or systemic imaging uh, radionucleotide testing, the most common test used right now is dotate PET. 
And Dorotate PET has over 90% sensitivity and specificity for paraganglioma. Up until about five or 10 years ago, we were using FDG uh, PET CT, which also has relatively good sensitivity and specificity, but it is now surpassed by Dorotate PET. And what's the laboratory workup that you get for these patients? And do you get it for every patient? So that's a good question. Um, historically, we would only get uh, laboratory testing in patients where we were uh, concerned that they had symptoms of catecholamine secretion. So the patients with uncontrolled hypertension, headaches, pallor, flushing, et cetera. But more and more for patients with jugular paraganglioma, we are, we are getting routine testing. That's in contrast to tympanicum tumors, which very rarely secrete, and we generally don't obtain testing. But again, overall, the risk of a tumor secreting uh, for a jugular paraganglioma is overall less than 5% for a head and neck uh, tumor. So the laboratory workup most commonly is fractionated 24-hour uh, urine metanephrines. You're looking for metabolites of norepinephrine, including metanephrine, VMA, uh, dopamine, et cetera. And when you're talking about elevation, it's common that you'll see just a mild elevation in the numbers, but for it to be real, you want at least a two-fold or three-fold increase over baseline in your metanephrine testing for you to consider it a positive test. And there is a gen- genetic component to this tumor. What's your genetic testing and what are some of the common mutations we see? So molecular genetic testing is becoming more common for these tumors. Historically, we would only get genetic testing in patients who seemed at higher risk, so the very young patient particularly a young male, uh, because they're less common in men, Uh, and also secreting tumors, malignant tumors, and patients with multicentric disease. But more and more, we are obtaining genetic testing. The benefit of genetic testing is it might provide um, a prognosis for the disease, and it might influence surveillance and even your approach to care. So jugular paragangliomas can be associated with MEN type 2A and 2B, von Hippel-Lindau, and NF1, but more frequently, they're, they're discussed in the context of familial paraganglioma syndrome. Familial paraganglioma syndrome is an autosomal, autosomal dominantly inherited syndrome, and it's typically associated with the succinate dehydrogenase mutation. There's multiple succinate dehydrogenase mutations you can have. We tip, they're typically classified as type 1 through type 4. Type 1 through 3 generally result in a more benign disease course, less likely to have secretion, less likely to have malignancy associated with them. And the type 4, which is associated with succinate dehydrogenase B mutation, has a much worse prognosis overall. These patients are more likely to have a secreting, a catecholamine secreting tumor, and also are more likely to have malignant potential. So once we've done the full workup, we've talked about... um physical exam, genetics, lab workup, imaging, all of that, we diagnose a patient with a jugular paraganglioma. There are a couple of staging classifications when we talk about this tumor. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, there have been multiple staging uh, systems that have been uh, devised over the years, but the two most common, uh, commonly cited ones are the Ugo Fish classification, also the Glasscock-Jackson classification. More commonly, uh, we don't, even in clinic pragmatically or practically speaking, we typically don't apply a class to it when we're talking about the the care of the patient. We more commonly just describe what's involved and the areas involved because um, these classifications are trying to group patients very specifically, but uh, these tumors don't always follow a very characteristic or um, predictable pattern in their growth. So for board preparation, there's primarily uh, two different classification systems that are used. The first is the Glasscock-Jackson classification. 
Uh, type 1 is a small tumor involving the jugular bulb, middle ear, and mastoid. A type 2 extends under the internal auditory canal and it may have intracranial extension. A type 3 erodes into the petrous apex and it may also have intracranial extension. And a type 4 extends beyond the petrous apex to involve the clivus and infratemporal fossa and it may also have intracranial extension. When we talk about the Ugo fish classification, a type A involves the middle ear cleft and that's what we commonly refer to as a glomus tympanicum. A B involves the middle ear and mastoid. Type C1, so we're going to talk about C1 through C4, and that's different varying extents of carotid involvement, C for carotid. C1 involves the carotid foramen. C2 involves the vertical portion of the carotid. C3 involves the horizontal carotid artery involving the uh, petrous apex. And C4 has more extension beyond the petrous apex to involve the periclival area, foramen lacerum, and infratemporal fossa. And then we talk about D, and D is uh, related to having intracranial extension. So D1 has less than 2 centimeter intracranial extension, D2 has greater than 2 centimeters intracranial extension, and D3 uh, indicates an unresectable intracranial tumor. So once you have this tumor classified and diagnosed, what are some treatment options and how do you counsel patients on which treatment options to pursue? So historically, like all other skull-based lesions, uh, the mere diagnosis of a jugular paraganglioma uh, necessitated surgical resection with the, gross of radical uh, with the goal of uh, radical resection or gross total resection. And as you might imagine, this results in significant morbidity. With use of MRI and a better understanding of the natural history of disease, we've tended to become more conservative over time. So currently there are three, primarily three treatment options, but there's multiple treatments underneath these individual main treatment options. The first and most common, uh, or historically the most common treatment is surgical resection. And under surgical resection, there's multiple different strategies. You might perform limited resection, and that might be just the middle ear component to try to alleviate pulsatile tinnitus. You might perform more aggressive subtotal resection, and usually when we're talking about subtotal resection, we're talking about resecting the majority of the tumor, but leaving the most critical part in the jugular foramen with the intent of reducing cranial nerve morbidity. So there are several series that demonstrate that you can resect over 90% of very large tumors and leave the portion that's migrating or invading medially through the jugular foramen and keep intact lower cranial nerves. That treatment paradigm might be followed with, radio, uh, with radiosurgery or just observed for a period of time. Lastly, gross total resection, again, is the historical gold standard, but less commonly used today. Gross total resection is beneficial for the patient with a smaller tumor where the tumor can be completely removed with low morbidity and providing the patient with cure. But once you have a larger tumor, uh, that's less feasible and less commonly performed. The risk of developing new or worsening cranial neuropathy with gross total resection approaches an additional 20 to 40 percent on top of the baseline risk of lower cranial neuropathy that a person might present with of 20 to 30 percent. And I also want to uh, present one idea that I think is a common misconception, and that is the idea that if a patient presents with lower cranial neuropathy, it's probably reasonable to perform surgery because they're, they already have their nerves gone. A lot of these patients, even though they demonstrate significant paralysis of the lower cranial nerves, it's often an incomplete paralysis. Removing those nerves or resecting those nerves during gross total resection may even worsen a person who seemingly had lower cranial nerve paralysis to begin with. So said another way, even when a person has a nerve out after surgery, that nerve might be even worse for dysphonia, dysphagia, et cetera.
The second treatment option is radiosurgery, and more and more that's being used today. Radiosurgery is a single uh, treatment that's outpatient, and most commonly it's used under the uh, Gamma Knife platform, but there are other platforms with Linac, CyberKnife, etc. With Gamma Knife radiosurgery, there's a rigid head frame that's used to stereotactically isolate the tumor and treat it very specifically and reduce surrounding morbidity to, uh, uh, to tissue. The risk of acquiring new cranial neuropathy after gamma knife radiosurgery using about 15 grade of the margin, which is the most common treatment dose that's used today, the risk of new or worsening cranial neuropathy is anywhere from 1 to 10%, depending on the series you read. And tumor control, that is not having the tumor grow substantially afterwards, is over 90%, at least out to 10 years. So it has a very good track record for keeping the tumor at bay and not having it grow and it has a very good track record as far as uh, lower cranial neuropathy. Stereotactic radiosurgery may be used primarily or up front, or it may be used as an adjunct after subtotal resection or for recurrent disease after what was thought to be gross total resection with subsequent recurrence. There are some limitations with gamma knife radiosurgery, and the, probably the most pertinent limitation with stereotactic radiosurgery with gamma knife is the inferior extent of the tumor. With gamma knife, you can only extend, at least uh, with the current series, you can only extend down to C2. So if your tumor goes lower than that, you might not be able to encompass the whole tumor. The last option is observation, and um, that's uh, typically not used except for older patients um, uh, or patients who are uh, less well and not fit for surgery. But even in those patients, more commonly, they may undergo radiosurgery. The natural history suggests that about 30 or 40 percent of the tumors will grow over five years, and that number increases over time. But probably just as importantly, with observing the tumor, there's at least a 20 to 30 percent chance that the patient will acquire new or worsening cranial neuropathy over the first three to five years of observation, compared to less than 10 percent for radiosurgery. And when you talk about surgery, can you speak a little bit to your approach, so what you do preoperatively to... Uh, ensure that surgery works as well as it can and what some of the common uh, surgical approaches are for these tumors. Yeah, so the preoperative um, uh, considerations are, you. Uh, I think the one thing that's important to mention, although rare, uh, is a secreting tumor. So prior to surgery for secreting tumor, you need um, catecholamine control. And so you'll typically start with an alpha blockade followed by a beta blockade. If you, re if you reverse that order and you first use a beta blockade, you can have unopposed adrenergic response, which can, which can re uh, result in cardiovascular collapse. So it's important to do it in that order. Uh, almost always for a jugular uh, paraganglioma, we'll perform preoperative embolization with angiography. And there's different materials that you can use. Overall, the risk of causing cranial neuropathy with the em embolic agent is less than 5%, but there is a small risk associated with that. And preoperative embolization will reduce the amount of bleeding and the, and the uh, risk for uh, transfusion. The vessels most commonly embolized with preoperative embolization uh, is the, uh, are the ascending pharyngeal artery and the occipital artery. Or, but you, with larger tumors, you can have multiple uh, artery involvement that, that's primarily associated with the external carotid system. But with much larger tumors, you can also have parat uh, parasitization of intracranial blood vessels and dural vessels too. And so the larger tumors are more difficult to embolize sometimes. And what's the surgical approach? There's a name for it from my understanding. Yeah, the uh, Ugo Fish popularized a more systematic approach for gross total tumor resection right around 1980. And the infra infratemporal fossa type A approach is used in most patients. Uh, 
The infratemporal, classically, the infratemporal fossa type A approach involves a subtotal petrosectomy. So you're exonerating essentially most of the pneumatized air cells of the temporal bone, and you're closing the ear canal. So it's in many ways a very large canal wall down procedure. You'll then mobilize the facial nerve. And when you mobilize the facial nerve in an infratemporal fossa type A, you're mobilizing it anteriorly across the second, uh, basically pedicled across uh, GSPN. And just moving the nerve uh, with the infratemporal fossa type A approach will result in at least temporary, but sometimes some degree of permanent facial nerve paralysis. This has led to modifications uh, to the infratemporal fossa type A approach, and more and more patients are uh, not mobilizing the facial nerve, but leaving it in a fallopian canal and working on the front and the back side of the nerve, and uh, preserving the ear canal in many cases so the patient doesn't have a conductive hearing loss. You can also perform a limited inferior mobilization of the facial nerve, and that's just by the stylomastoid frame. And those couple millimeters can also be really beneficial when you're trying to remove the tumor uh, in the region of the jugular frame. And you've talked a lot about prognosis and expectations uh, for the different types of approaches and treatments, but uh, how do you counsel patients on follow-up? What's your long-term follow-up with these patients? A follow-up is largely dictated based on your treatment uh, and the the amount of remnant of residual disease. So if you're observing a patient, you'll uh, commonly get a scan six months later than yearly for several years, and you can go to biennial after that. Um, if you have performed uh, microsurgical resection, the risk of recurrence is proportional to the volume of tumor left behind. So in the case of a very subtotal resection, I'll image more frequently, but if I performed a very aggressive subtotal resection or near total resection, I'll image less frequently. And with a gross total resection, I would usually obtain a scan at about one year, and then at three to five years, and then uh, more infrequently thereafter, but probably lifelong surveillance to some level is, is beneficial. When you consider radiosurgery, the, the important thing about radiosurgery is it doesn't get rid of the tumor. Sometimes it'll shrink, but it doesn't ever uh, completely resolve the tumor. You'll, also, you'll always see it on the scan. And so we'll typically get an MRI about nine months to a year after treatment. And then um, we'll, depending on the size of the tumor and uh, the initial uh, treatment response, we could obtain every one to three years for several years. But again, indefinite follow-up is needed for patients who undergo radiosurgery as well. Well, Dr. Carlson, thanks again so much for being here. Before we left, I wanted to give a final summary. Jugular paragangliomas are paragangliomas of the temporal bone, and they often present with pulsatile tinnitus, conductive hearing loss, and possible lower cranial nerve deficits. The pathology is a paragangloma of the adventitia of the jugular bulb and is, is associated with the Zellbollen-Ness. Workup includes imaging, which demonstrates moth-eaten bone on CT and a salt-and-pepper appearance on T1 with contrast, and it's hyper-intense on T2. Additional workup includes a genetic workup, which could possibly identify mutations in the succinate dehydrogenase gene, or could also be associated with von Hippel-Lindau, NF1, or MEN2A or 2B. You should consider lab workup. Uh, for 24-hour urine fractionated catecholamines or metanephrines or plasma metanephrines uh, in the rare case that this is a hypersecreting tumor. 
Glomus jugulare can be classified using the fish classification system or the Glasscock-Jackson classification system. Treatment options include radiation and surgery. Radiation is good at uh, keeping the tumor from growing, and surgical approaches include the infratemporal fossa type A approach, which is commonly cited for this tumor, and preoperative embolization and medical treatment should be considered. Surgical resection does have a moderate chance of additional lower cranial nerve deficits. Follow-up includes imaging for confirmation of total resection if surgery is done and uh, to confirm that there are no additional tumors. It's time to bring this show to a close, but before we do, I did just have some final questions to ask. Again, I will ask a question give five or so seconds of pause so that you can think or press pause yourself, and then I'll give the answer. The first question is, what is the classic histology of a paraganglioma? The classic histology of a paraganglioma is the Zell-Bollin pattern, which is nests of non-chromaffin staining cells among vascular channels. The next question is, what are the most common genetic mutations involved in temporal bone paragangliomas. The most common genetic mutations involved in jugular paragangliomas are succinate dehydrogenase mutations, von Hippel-Lindau, NF1, and MEN2A and 2B. Next question, what are the two common classification schemes of glomus jugulare? And I'll even try to have you recite one of them. The two main ways of categorizing glomus jugulare are using the fish classification and the Glasscock-Jackson classification, and I'll run through them both right now. The fish classification has type A, which is tumor limited to the middle ear, and type B, which is tumor limited to the tympanomastoid area with no infralabyrinthine compartment. Type C is tumor involving the infralabyrinthine compartment uh, and extending into the petrous apex, and that has subunits. And type D is intracranial extension. There's types C1 through 3 and types D1 and D2. For the Glasscock-Jackson classification, type 1 is a small tumor involving the jugular bulb, middle ear, and mastoid. Type 2 is tumor extending under the internal auditory canal. Type 3 is tumor extending into the petrous apex. And type 4 is tumor extending beyond the petrous apex into the clivus and infratemporal fossa. Finally, what is the most commonly described surgical approach for jugular paraganglioma? A commonly cited surgical approach is the infratemporal fossa type A approach, though there are several approaches to these tumors. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.